I think humility is a really good trait in people. I want them to be ambitious and take risks because again, I, I just have the perspective of you never know what life has for you or when. And then just a sense of optimism. I really like people that have a view of like they can accomplish anything and get through the hard times, gets back into like grit. But those are the things of like, just be kind to people, be ambitious about what you're able to accomplish and be humble about what you're able to achieve. Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Now let's get to the episode. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks, thrilled to be here. I am thrilled to have you. Sounds like you've listened to a couple of these episodes. You know the drill. Jubin reads his guest backgrounds back to them. Inevitably, he screws things up. When he does, cue laughing from guest, correcting me, and then we use that as a launching point to take off. Deal? Sounds good. I don't let my the AEs on our team introduce me because it's always <laughs> awkward having somebody do your background and intro for you, but I will allow it this one last time. That's why I do it because, you know, it ends up being the like modesty show and that's <laughs> not like... That's not the point here. The point is to establish some rapport and then we can actually jump into it, right? Because the thing about these guests that I have on is that they're super successful and to my surprise and delight, generally pretty humble. And that doesn't make for the dramatic intro that I need for the show. So that's why I do it. All right, I love it. And then on the flip side, sometimes they kind of meander through things that I'm just really not interested in. And so I get to go straight through it. <laughs> we don't have that long. I generally need more time than we have. And so this is an opportunity for me to cut to the chase. So speaking of, you got your bachelor's in communication, your MBA from UC Berkeley. Then you started at Google. Really hilarious story that I've heard you tell about finding Google. You spent nine years at Google from 03 to 2012. You started as an account coordinator in the AdWords group for two years, and then an associate, account associate, two years in AdWords, and then an account manager, basically doing inside sales. You did a year of that. Also, this is all in the AdWords world of Google. Then you were the AE in inside sales for AdWords. So you just kind of get getting promoted every year-ish or so, year and a half. Then you're the team lead for the inside sales organization. Assumptively, that was kind of your first management gig. Yeah. Maybe player coach. You had your own quota and the team's quota. It's the worst job in the world. Spot on. <laughs> yeah, it's a really terrible job. It's a necessary evil, but terrible I job. I do not allow that to ever happen ever again in places I go. And then you became a sales manager for the retail vertical of AdWords. At this point, you know, we're six, seven years into your Google run probably eight years into AdWords and they, you know, it's just, man, it must've been fun selling Google ads at that well, time. Yeah. You hear, you hear the background and I'm interjecting on even the background of when the business is going from, I joined, it was a couple hundred people. I left when it was probably 70,000 people, but it took me 10 years to actually realize what the heck was happening in my career at that point. Right, right. Exactly. So then they start verticalizing it. And I assume chopping territories up in every way imaginable because the TAM was unlimited, basically, yep. and there was not enough people to fill the demand. That's funny, not to get sidetracked, but I just got off with the CRO Figma, and they are having a similar problem right now where she literally, they cannot hire enough people to meet demand, which is quite a cool problem to have. Anyway, so then you went to become the head of new business sales all within AdWords in San Francisco. You did that for two and a half years. I've heard you say this before, but your boss, who sounds like kind of was a mentor to you and you worked with him for a while at Google, went over to AdRoll and gave you quite a meaty position there, kind of giving you a little bit more autonomy than you ostensibly had at Google. So you did four years at AdRoll as the VP and managing director of sales. And then in 2017, you became the CEO and president of TalkIQ. I think it was about 18 months that you spent there, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, 18 months. Yeah, we'd raised 22 million in funding, had about 17, 18 employees. Yep. And then you got acquired by Dialpad, started out as a partnership and then turned into an acquisition. And today you are the chief revenue officer and chief strategy officer and sit on the board of Dialpad. It's been 
gosh, about three years. Is that right? That's right. Three years come by fast. You nailed it all. Well done. Did I? All right. Yeah. I always tell I run the gambit. It's like I've done BDR, account management, inside sales. As you said, the worst job in the world of being a player, coach, manager, director, you name it. I have a bunch of questions for you on the background before we dive into some specifics. So you mentioned right as I was reading the background of Google, I don't know if I want to say this is the perfect sales job, but when you talk about having a monopoly in an industry and then being a salesperson, this was it. It was taking candy from a baby. And I'm not discrediting you or anything that you did, but this was selling ads on Google against newspapers. That was the competition. I could not have said it any better. I joke with people now in hindsight because it was like terrible analogy, shooting fish in a barrel. But you were competing to say, hey, I can help you. You're not going to pay for brand awareness on search. So you can make sure that you just get exposure. It doesn't cost you anything. By the way, you pay for that brand exposure every time you run a TV ad or a newspaper and a radio, and then you don't know what you get from it. So I can go give you free exposure and I can actually help you track what's converting and what's driving revenue to help save you dollars and be more efficient. Do you want to buy some ads? I always tell people like, go join new teams and find markets that you can be a monopoly and be successful. And find opportunities for growth. And it was just uh, you know, a little bit of a lucky, fortunate time in my life and career. It took me a long time to realize kind of what was going on as well. Was Omid Kordistani, was he running all go-to-market at that point? Yeah, so our go-to-market, the AdWords team when I joined, and these are kind of the funny stories because I go back, you know, we know Google as we know it today, but this was, you know, dot-com bust has just happened. I just left Santa Clara for my undergrad in, in 02. And I was literally decide. you know, you mentioned that the joke of kind of like how I got to Google. I was literally deciding between an unpaid internship and Google. And Google was not the Google that we know today at the time. But Omid was running all of sales. Cheryl had just come in to run AdWords. And I think the AdWords organization was literally, I don't know, 55 people. What's funny also is the, the co-founder of Dialpad, where I'm at today, was the first engineer that I sat next to because this is the size of a business that's, you know, it's probably 250, 300 people. So your engineers and sales are, are sitting next to each other. And our co-founder was literally building ad tools for the sales team I was on. I always say I don't believe in coincidences. No, it's it's funny. The world is a very small place. I always remind people, be kind and, and generous to people, especially if you're in an industry like tech, you will be surprised at how often you will cross paths and need help. No kidding. Reputation's all you got. So when you were there, were you happy or were you miserable? Let me frame the question. So many times, and I just had this conversation with Figma, so many times people don't realize they are in the golden days when they're happening and they miss the forest from the trees so often. And literally there won't be any sales job better than this one at this time. Were you and your peers, did it feel that way at that time? Much like anything, I don't think you necessarily realize how good you have it in that moment in time. And that's something that I talk to anybody within organizations when I join different startups to talk about kind of like now can kind of see when the good times are there and be able to kind of remind people. At the time, I, I don't necessarily know that I knew exactly what was going on at the scale, because as I said, it's one of the most successful businesses that, that we'll probably ever see in our lifetime. I was happy, I would say, for the first five years. And then I think I became a little bit complacent. And that complacency is, hey, the business is growing phenomenally. It's pretty easy, but I wanted to do more. And that's ultimately why I ended up leaving. And I, and I look back and I'm like, I always tell people now, I wish I had left five years earlier. I wish I was there for four years. I wish I had left. And I love my life right now. I love everything, I, I, like how my career has played out. But if I go back and said like, hey, would I have done anything differently? I would have left earlier. I probably would have left it at kind of four and a half, five years. I think it would have been interesting to leave to go to Facebook at that time. And we had folks like Grady Burkett and David Fisher leave to go to Facebook. And I believe Emily White was over there too. And, and then obviously eventually Cheryl. Yeah, and Cheryl. And so that's one opportunity that I look back and say like, hey, I think I kind of stagnated growth for a couple of years. And, and I wish yeah. I'd taken a little bit more risk as opposed to saying, hey, this is pretty good. I'll just ride this out. Yeah, that makes sense. And for the audience listening, Cheryl, Cheryl Sandberg, let's take that a step further. I wish I'd left five years earlier. 
So I'm going to guess that the reason that you say that is because you want to be in the arena. I've heard you say, like, it's better to swing and miss than get out striking out, right? Yes. Just watching the ball fly by. Yeah, exactly. And okay, fine. But those next five years made you very wealthy. They put a lot of money in your pocket. And often, as very successful people look back on the regrets that they have, it is always one of regret that they didn't take more risk. But it's a lot easier to take that risk when you've had those five years, that was a lot of meaningful equity and probably some pretty good commission checks that you made that enabled you to take risk that maybe you otherwise wouldn't have. Looking back, obviously you did and those risks paid off. And so, I don't know, do you feel like you have success bias there? Oh, for sure. And I think it's easier to look in hindsight to say, hey, your options were to go to Twitter or go to Facebook. And hey, both of those businesses happen to be very, very, right. very solid, great businesses. This is obviously a personal question. I wish I had just taken more risk when I was younger. And I say that meaning that I think things tend to always play out the way they're intended to. Meaning you can take a risk and make a decision to leave and it's probably not going to be that bad for you. Things will probably play out in a good way. And you're just on a different path and a different journey. You know, when I left AdRoll and became a CEO, like that was a big risk. And sure, I had, you know, perhaps some liquidity and that made it a little bit easier. But at the end of the day, I looked at my life and saying like, hey, these are experiences that I want to have and I got to get past a little bit of the monetary piece. And, and again, that's easier said than done when you have a little bit of money in the bank or, or your pocket and you feel a little bit more, more open to taking that risk, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And I think I often say this and I always encourage my friends to do more things that are different and just change just for the sake of change, because risk is always much bigger in your head than it actually is. Because I think in our nature, we're so afraid of failing because that's so, you know, that's such a core, like nobody wants to be a loser. People would rather not be a loser than be the winner, if that makes sense. Like that's a much scarier thing as a part of your identity. And so people always overcalculate what could go wrong rather than what could go right. And I think that's even more so in tech. And you see that in career decisions, you know, is, hey, this is pretty good. I could stay here. And you tend to be the pessimist a little bit to yourself, right? Which is, oh, what if this doesn't work out? This is pretty good. What's the risk if I leave? I mean, it took me, as I said, probably four years of thinking about that to finally say, oh, this is, this is a good enough opportunity. I'm going with somebody I trust. Yeah. I think there's opportunity in the business. There are other things I want to achieve. And I don't think I can achieve them at Google. That was one of my key drivers was I think it's going to take me another five or 10 years before I'm a VP or I may never become a VP. And I want to have these other experiences in my career and in my life. Yeah, that makes total sense. Okay, so, and I hate to keep bringing up Figma, but I had this conversation literally earlier today, and there's actually quite a bit of similarities between Google and Figma in the sense of the, the ride that they're having. What I asked her, I said, Amanda, when was the last time Figma missed a number? Probably it's been three years. Since she's joined, I don't think they've missed a quarter. And I think that last quarter was the first quarter that a rep has ever missed a number. Okay, so like it is that kind of place where when you can't hire fast enough to meet demand yeah. because demand is so overwhelming, then obviously you got to give it to reps and you just can't calibrate quotas to a point where people won't overachieve them. Like it's just, it's almost impossible. Yeah. Google was the same way. So the problem is over time, how do you know who the hell's good? How can you tell, you know, that the expression I used earlier is like shooting fish in a barrel. Could you at the time when you looked around at your peers, you can't use quota attainment, right? Could you tell who was good? Yes. You have to start paying attention to the behaviors and the motions of the people and how they talk about things. Because I think when you are dealing with that much demand, people are really bought into the value of the product. And so it, that doesn't necessarily mean that the person is doing all of the right things in the process of the behaviors or the values of the organization that I think mean that they would be successful. And there were plenty of people, you know, we were sellers on the floor. We knew who was good and who knew, who knew things and who didn't. And we saw people leave and some of our weaker reps would leave and they would go to Facebook at times. You know, I hate to say it that way, but that was because that you knew that, hey, they were going to go and work a different opportunity and that was going to be a different level of growth. But it wasn't because they were the best rep. I'm just trying to be open on some of the dynamics that play out. 
Yeah, no, I don't think you're disparaging anybody. When you joined and there was a couple hundred people at Google or in the go-to-market org? No, in Google. In Google. So were you, when you first started, were you reporting to Cheryl? No, I was reporting to April Anderson and Emily White. Emily White, who was also at Facebook and then was the COO of Snap, was one of my first managers. And it's funny to think like every manager I had literally has gone on to, you know, you're just joining a really small organization with really great talent. Those people go on to do other great things. It's kind of amusing. So I would ask you the same question about the leaders that I just did about the reps. These leaders, Cheryl, Emily, the engineer working next to you, could you tell at the time, was it really obvious that these are really, really talented people? I think you always knew they were really talented and special and unique. I didn't know how special, how unique, how amazing until you have a little bit more perspective in your career, because you have to remember, I'm a 22-year-old right? Even after three or four years of working with these people, I'm 25, 26. And my experience is, hey, you're out of business that happens to be one of the fastest growing businesses the planet has ever seen. So you just lack perspective. And now I look back at it and it was, I don't know how Omid did it. I don't know how Cheryl did it. I don't know how David Fisher did it. Like the people that they brought on, everyone was just amazing my MBA was literally spending nine years at Google and seeing how to lead and how to set expectations and drive accountability and be humble and connect with people and think about scale and those processes. But it took a long time to have the perspective to realize that. Was there an early signal or was there a time when you had a moment of, oh my God, like this company is going to be insane. Was there a deal, a key hire, a quarter? Like, was there anything in your mind that when you think back stands out as like an illuminating beacon of premonition of what will be? Yeah. I think like the, oh shit moment <laughs> is we had an inside sales rep at the team close the university of Phoenix. And I think the university of Phoenix was going to spend I don't, it was some words. I'll probably even quote this wrong. They were probably spending 30 or 40 million a year at that time on online advertising. And that was an inside sales deal. And then they were not comped, you know, if it became an issue of what is their bonus and comp going to be on this, this $30 million deal. But it just highlighted how much opportunity was out there and that the immense opportunity in front of you. But even just the other moments, it wasn't just the deal sizes. It was, I stopped unpacking my boxes. So, you know, you would first move offices or shuffle cubes or, or workstations, whatever it might be. I think I moved in two years at 1.16 different times into probably four or five different buildings. And so you literally would have your box of, you know, you come by and, and grab the box and put your belongings in it. I just stopped unpacking because I was like, oh, our start classes every week were, I think the largest ones we saw got upwards of 90 people per week. That was not just happening, you know, once a quarter. That was literally every week that the size of your organization doubled and every month it quadrupled and it just kept happening and it just kept happening for years. And there was no slowdown, no hiccup. Every quarter is the best quarter, like nothing ever slowed down on that business. And again, growing up, again, you're a kid kind of going through it. You think this is just the norm. Yeah, that's absolutely insane. Can I ask you a personal question? You don't have to answer it. Yeah. I have a lot of friends when I was growing up in sales that were in tech sales and my mom and stepped out of a PhD in chemistry and biology, respectively. They didn't start making money until they were 36, 37, like late, right? Like they literally they didn't start. And a lot of my friends are making a shitload of money at a very early age in tech sales. And I've watched many of them not know what to do or how to deal with it or who they are. I've watched their egos go crazy because their work was who they are. And when their work is going that well and they're making all this money, they kind of lose track of who they really are. I think at the time of Google, this was probably cranked all the way, right? People were making, like, again, like, how do you quota a $30 million deal? 
What was that like for you or for the team? Did you see that? Did you feel that? Did you go through? Did Dan have his own evolution of like, all right, I'm rich. Like, I'm going to have a lot of money now. Money is not an issue. And in some ways, that can go one of two directions. In one direction, it could be, all right, like you lose track of who you are. In the other direction, it could be like, all right, what's actually important to me? Like, it could be a pretty nice reminder at an early age that, Maybe there's more to it. Go ahead. I don't mean to lead the witness. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't think, you know, in my experience of, of the people around me, I don't think it really changed a lot of people. Yeah. And I say that I'm just kind of racking my head. Sometimes you went to parties with your coworkers and they had been in different places and had some nice things, but I don't think a lot of the vast majority of anyone really changed. And I think that goes back to kind of the hiring and the personalities of those people. It just wasn't necessarily the value. Like Google wasn't a flashy business. And I think the leaders weren't flashy and it wasn't, it just never played out that way. Yeah. That's actually refreshing. Yeah. So I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to shake my head. I'm like, I wish I had a more creative fun answer on some of this stuff. But no, like, no, no. I'm like, I don't think anyone's lives drastically changed. Meaning I think they, you know, they could have some nice homes or they could pay off their, their loans or their debts or go to school or have some, some less stress on things. But I don't think people fundamentally changed their lives in terms of their approach or values. That's fair. On this ride, nine years, you know, again, everything was up and to the right, just blowout quarters. What sucked? Like when you look back on moments that hurt, pain, are there any moments that stand out? There is a moment that stands out to me. I don't know why this particular moment always, always stands out to me, but it was when a senior leader, obviously over time scales, you had like new senior leaders come in. So it's not any of the people that, that I've mentioned by names on those pieces, just to be clear in case they ever listen to this stuff. There was a senior leader that showed up that just didn't know who we were on the team and made no, no attempt to even connect with the individuals to understand the challenges and opportunities. And that, I think, was kind of subconsciously a catalyst for me of like, this place has gotten really big. It's a wonderful, amazing business, but it's not what I want out of an experience anymore. In that moment, I don't know why it, it stays with me, but it reminds me to always, no matter how senior or whatever you get to it by title, always stay connected with people on an individual level and make the extra efforts to, to be friendly and kind to them and just connect with them and know their names. And, you know, it reminds me that our names are the most important word in, in the language to yourself. But that moment was like a moment of suck where I was like, oh, we're killing it for this person. They have absolutely no idea. If I asked them my name or anybody on the team's name or actually what we even did, they would have no idea. They're literally in an ivory tower. Yeah. I think we could spend a show just talking about your experience at Google. One more question before I let my curiosity run wild here. Are there any key qualities or character traits that were interviewed for or very obviously consistent in the peers that were being hired on the go-to-market team at Google? The three that come to mind, accountability, humility, and coachability. Those three things, like really easy teams, just everyone was always easy to work with. And, and perhaps it's like a sense of optimism with people of people are solutions oriented to take action, easy to coach, but you could provide feedback to pretty much anybody as long as, you know, you're kind of thoughtful of context and tone that you're using. But people were there because they knew that, hey, this was a performance culture that you're sitting next to, you know, the engineers. Like I, I'm like, those are the best engineers in the world at the time. Hands yep. down, to have that collection of talent and smarts in one place was exceptional. And I think people felt the pride of like, hey, I'm working at probably the top 1% in the world and I want to do a really good job. And so I got to step up my game. And that means that I got to prep and, and be accountable. And I got to be open to the feedback because these are the best and brightest. How would you today or how did they at that time interview or tease out coachability? Like right now, if I walked in and I was interviewing for your team and you were trying to figure out, is this guy coachable? What'd you ask? Yeah, usually what happens on that actually comes into like, we make everyone go through presentations and then we actually can provide opportunities for feedback and then actually playing it back to them to see if people actually go through pattern recognition. Because I think at the end of the day, coachability comes down to like, can you identify your patterns? Even talking through like when we do interviews today or I do interviews today, you know, a lot of people at this point in their careers of sale, you know, depending on if we're talking enterprise or mid-market really comes down to like, do they know why they are successful? 
and can they identify the patterns? Because the same for deals, it's all pattern recognition at the end of the day. If you believe that, you know, sales is an art and in science, but if you believe in the science part, it comes down to pattern recognition, right? Do I understand why I'm being successful and why I'm not? And so that comes into the questions of everything from like, hey, walk me through how you make decisions. Why did you join this startup? Okay, hey, you were successful. Why were you successful? What was the behaviors that you were doing on those pieces? How do you react to feedback? I have hard conversations, interviews. Anytime uh, I just made an, an offer today where I wanted to follow up with the individual prior to an offer and actually have a hard conversation with them around some personality traits that I thought might not align and might be challenging or off-putting. And I wanted to have a very honest, blunt conversation around it because I was like, hey, this is a conversation I don't want to have if it goes awry here, or I at least want to point to the conversations and say, hey, remember when we sat down and actually talked right. through it? Right. So we all agreed. So now if it's not working out, right, this is unfortunately not going to not going to fly. I just had a conversation like that. We're recruiting an SE into one of our portfolio companies and I've worked with him in the past. I referred him in and all of a sudden it got real. They really liked him. And I'm going to make up a name, Mike. I called Mike and I said, hey, they like you and it sounds like you like them. But I I want to give you the feedback that I thought when we were on a team together, you phoned it in for the last year and a half. I didn't think you worked very hard. And I think you got carried by your rep. And I don't think that's who you are because I've seen you work hard in the past. But when you don't give a shit, you don't answer your phone, it's really obvious. And at that point, we're, you know, at a big company, you can skate by, you can do a few little things. Yeah. But dude, like, not only are you about to be at a startup and I want you to be successful, but like selfishly, my name is attached to you. And so if you fail, or if you sh exhibit some of those characteristics that you did, who I don't think is you, but if you do, that's going to be real bad for both of us, you know? So like before we get too far into this, I just want to let you know that that's something that I've observed and I want to just hear from you why it'll be different now or why you'll be the mic that I got to know rather than the mic that I kind of have a bitter taste in my mouth for when we stopped working together not a fun conversation. No, I think those conversations are, are important though. And I think if they're done in the right way, and I usually coach people around, look, you can say anything if you pay attention to context and tone, can also really drive closer relationships. Difficult conversations don't have to create animosity. Um, and I think they're healthy. And again, the intention is like, hey, you think there's potential in this person. You want them to live up to the potential because you're also their referral, right? Uh, to some extent, like your name is also part of that. Yeah, exactly. And I told him, I think you're great, dude. I think you're great when you're engaged. So tell me why you weren't engaged. And we actually got to a really good point. He was very thankful that I gave him the feedback. And then there's a little bit of an added chip on your shoulder at that point. Like, I think, you know, one of my previous guests, Sam Blonde, said that there's no recruiters. Everything is referral based. And the reason they do that is because when you get referred in, then you have someone else's name attached to it. And so I feel like if you have that early, then it also helps mitigate some of the risk. So anyway, okay, you went to Talk IQ after AdRoll and you became the CEO and president. However, you weren't the founder of the company. I think you were an entrepreneur in residence briefly at a venture firm and then got placed into this thing. It's kind of a couple of engineering leaders that were the co-founders that didn't want to run the company, really. They just wanted to build the product. Yeah. And you wanted to go and, and run a company. Why did you choose to join? And this was pre-series A, pre-product market fit generally, because you weren't, you know, and, and in your words, you've said like you weren't qualified to go into the high-flying company, right? Like you've never been a CEO. You're not going to go get the Figma. Why did you choose, if that was in you to do so, why did you choose to do that route rather than starting your own? Yeah, so... That route to me seems like a slight shortcut in terms of exceptional founders uh, with Jim and Etienne. Really good opportunity in terms of, so Talk IQ was a competitor to Gong and Chorus at the time. We'd all pretty much raised the same amount of seed in Series A. So, And I spoke about that opportunity in terms of that was a very natural product for me to go and, and talk about. And I think that opportunity for starting myself was, hey, I can go join this incubator. They're going to shortcut it. I get two exceptional technical founders. We're kind of halfway there, at least on the first version of like what the product looks like. And then I have to go and really focus on vision, 
What do we need to go and build? And then the go to market motions. And to me, it seems like a little bit of the shortcut the first time round, which was, hey, building a company is probably the craziest thing to, to be able to go and do. And I think trying to do that bootstrapped or on an idea, even harder. And going through an incubator, I think for me personally, helped shortcut some of those roadblocks or challenges and made it really just about focus on the product and focus on the go-to-market pieces. Don't worry about the back office or where to get office space or HR support. All of that stuff gets sussed out. Yeah. I don't know if I would go back now and do the same thing, right? Obviously, you you go pick up like some experience and perspective of, hey, now that I've been a CEO the first time and you pick up that wealth of experience... I don't know if I would actually go, if I wanted to do something again, I do want to do something again at some point in my career or run another business. I would love to have an opportunity to do that. I would probably just start it for myself, for sure. And I think it was, again, there's just all these unknowns that you get a little bit scared or worried about because you allow fear to kind of take over. But at that moment in time, I felt like it was just a great combination of team and product. And I would be crazy to, to kind of not do it. Where does that motivation come from for you? Like, why do you want to be a CEO? Why do you want to run a company? Why is that important to Dan? So one was my dad was a CEO. My dad also passed away, I would say, relatively young from cancer. And also I grew up in Silicon Valley. So I grew up literally down the street from Apple. And I think those three things all kind of played into, you never really know how short life is. And I know that I would regret my career in tech if I never actually tried to either build a startup or run a startup. Like, I know I can, I can picture myself sitting on my deathbed being like, oh, I was at Google for 38 years. That was wonderful. And I'm like, I don't know if I personally would feel fulfilled for that. I also think the hardest part that faces a lot of CEOs is like the go-to-market motions of, do you know how to talk about this and sell it and the scale? And I remember the dumbest question in hindsight I asked when I was interviewing for the CEO position, they gave me an offer was, I remember asking one of the investors, like, do you think I'm ready? <laughs> because I was scared. I was scared to death. I was like, oh my God, I'm suddenly going to be responsible for all these people. I got to figure out how to get funding. It's all these things I don't know. And then I reminded myself, hey, you know how to sell this thing and scale businesses. And that's probably the hardest part. This product is right in your wheelhouse. Of, it drives efficiency for sales. And it, again, it was just one of those things where I look back, I knew I would regret. It wasn't about money. It was really about, I want to have that experience. And personally, it was important for me to have that experience. If you don't mind me asking, how old were you when your father passed away? Uh, 32. So like- I never, and I never got to talk to him about, uh, you know, my enemy choking up in my voice for a moment. Um, sorry. Take your time. And if you want to, no, no, it's fine. No, no, it's fine. No, it's good. This, this is the stuff that's interesting, you know, for, for people. Um, I never got to have a, a conversation with him around what it's like to run a company or, or raise money or the pressures or the stresses of, of being responsible for people. Those are the things like, I'm like, I, I just wish I had had more business conversations with him just to learn on those pieces that like plays out as I, you know, as I, as I go through my career, I just looked up to him so much for being able to, to run a business and do everything he did for our family. And, and that's kind of been a little bit of, of wanting, perhaps wanting to follow in his footsteps a little bit. When you were growing up at the dinner table, was running a company, a topic of conversation? No, I think my mom would have killed him. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, he's funny. He always, we always had dinner at, literally on the dot at like seven o'clock because he would always come home at seven. But no, we would always talk about sports. Like TV was always off. We were there to kind of talk about each other's days. My brother and I were, were big athletes and my mom was an awesome stay-at-home mom, just so creative and doing everything. But no, it's just kind of normal. I, I hate to be like normal family conversations because nobody, everyone's conversations yeah. are different. But no, we didn't talk about work. You know, and I think my dad did just a really good job of being really active in all of our sports lives or interests of things that, that we were going on. And it wasn't about what was necessarily always going on at work. And do you have kids today? I do not. Not yet. If you were to have kids, what are the qualities, maybe one or three, that you want them to have? I think humility is a really good trait in people. I want them to be 
ambitious and take risks because again, I, I just have the perspective of you never know what life has for you or when. And then just a sense of optimism. I really like people that have a view of like they can accomplish anything and get through the hard times, gets back into like grit. But those are the things of like, just be kind to people, be ambitious about what you're able to accomplish and be humble about what you're able to achieve. As a kid, were you encouraged to take risk? I don't know how else to ask that. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go home and ask my mom. I'm going to call my mom tonight. <laughs> so let me, let me give you my answer. I've actually never asked anyone that before. And I've never asked myself that before. But I think the way that it's manifested for me is that the best thing I think my parents ever did for me was give me this insane sense of confidence that I can do anything. They always told me that. I can be anybody and I can do anything. And that gave me more permission for a risk than anything in my life. Cause you know, I'm an arrogant asshole at this point, right? Like they reframed how I think about failure in such a meaningful way that I just thought, well, I feel like I'm really confident to take on new challenges. I enjoy the act of doing it. Yeah. If I fail, I fail forward. So what's the risk? And that's how I feel like in a weird way, they gave me permission to take on risk was that gift of like, you can do whatever you want. Does that make sense? I don't know, I've never thought about it that way. That makes sense. I think what resonates with me is I never heard no. If I wanted to pick up a new sport or do something, you know, as it, like we were, we were big on sports, so I hate to keep going back to sports, but it was always, if it was an interest or wanting to do something, it was rarely a no, which again comes back to when you hear that, you're gonna put yourself in new opportunities and, and explore growth, which I think was just something that was there. That's a really nice way of framing it. My mother was like very Muslim and religious when she came to the States and she immigrated from Iran, escaping the revolution, which is very, very religious. Never once ever did she ever want me to be anything just because she was, I never thought about it that way, but like I could have been whatever. Now, would she have preferred that Jubin became a lawyer, dentist, doctor, et cetera? One million percent. But Anyway, he didn't, so sorry, mom. <laughs> okay, you do the CEO thing, and you spend about a year and a half. You raise a Series A, Salesforce Ventures raises it. Is the job what you thought it would be? No, and I say that meaning I had no idea the complexities of managing sales, product, engineering, people ops, there is just so much, so much breadth in that job. And then it is, you've got to raise money because you're an early stage startup, got to get distribution. You never quite know, you know, you're as the non-founder, you also don't know where the bodies are buried on this for, again, I'm using terrible analogies, so, I, so I apologize for that. <laughs> Those are complexities when you come into businesses, much like any business. If you're not there from the start, you never really know kind of on those, and that creates some complexity and dynamic of understanding. Even at that scale, again, we were, at the time I joined, we were less than 10, I think we were like seven people. So, but there's always complexity and, and no, a lot more complexities than I thought. That makes sense. Was it as fun as you thought it would be? I'm asking very selfishly, cause like I see so much of me and you, like I woke up when I was eight years old and I told my mom, like, I have to run a company. And I've always felt that way. I've got this glamorized view and I know, I know the minute that I get in there, it's not gonna be what I thought. The year that I made a great W2, it didn't feel as good as I thought. Or when I did whatever, it never ever reached that point. I don't know, that's why I ask. It was better than I thought though. Oh, good. Yeah, so when I say, was it more complex, it was my own ignorance of you know everything a CEO does. We had a successful outcome. So regardless of we had a successful outcome, I drove the thing into the ground through my ignorance. I would love to do it again. For people that are optimists and people that are ambitious, there's nothing better than being able to control and think about like, hey, I can go switch the brand out. I can go switch the color tomorrow if I wanted to. I'm like, oh, we can go, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. That's really fun. Having that opportunity and believing in yourself and believing in the vision and getting other people inspired by the vision, 
there's nothing better than when, when you see other people bought into that and other people responding and other people being successful and other people excited about showing up and having fun at work and being connected and knowing that you're a big part of the influence of that feeling, there's nothing better. And it doesn't mean that there's not a ton of really hard days at times of, you know, all of those things. And no, it was an awesome experience. And I hope to be able to do that again. While you were talking before you used the word control, I was going to say it. I was with one of our CEOs. He's a solo founder, CEO, and I was having dinner with him. And again, I'll use surnames here. Mike, I said, we're finding product market fit. We're finding it. It's not there yet. And he was having a really, really tough day. Lost a key employee. Like it's one of those days that you are not fond of the CEO type days. And he is an unbelievably successful executive at many firms, post-economic, like unbelievably. And I'm like, Mike, why are you doing this? Are you having fun? And he said, it's the most fun he's ever had in his career. And I said, why? And it's a very similar answer because he's like, dude, I control my outcome. I don't have to put up with anyone else's. We go down with me. And like, I hope we don't go down, but ultimately I can use my judgment that I think is pretty clear. And all of my inputs are highly correlated to the company's outputs. And I like it. I like that. And it was an answer that surprised me. So I'm not surprised to hear you say it. You also feel in the mix is kind of what I used to joke with Jim. So Jim Palmer was our, our co-founder and Etienne Mandershee was the other co-founder. And I, Jim and I and Etienne, we also just, you just feel like you're in the mix. And what I mean by that is, I remember getting an email from Peter Thiel's EA saying, Peter Thiel wants to learn about your startup and your, you know, you grew up in Silicon Valley. And I remember literally I fell in love with tech. Like my parents, I was either playing sports or like literally yeah. on AOL blocking the phone line for literally <laughs> hours getting yelled at and racking up massive bills at the time. So like I knew Sequoia and Kleiner just growing up in the Valley. And then when I'm knocking on the doors, literally, I remember showing up to ask for investments from you guys at the times and, and sitting there and I'm like, oh, this is like a surreal experience. And those are like very surreal experiences where you can watch Silicon Valley, the TV show. And I'm like, I was joking with my friends and I'm like, oh, that's real. I could write that sitcom. Like we kind of joke, it's glamorized a little bit. I'm like, there's a lot, there's a lot of truth to the craziness of what happens. And that's also a fun thing to kind of go through, especially if you have a passion and interest in tech and you're in this Mecca of kind of the Bay area, it was really fun to be in the mix of it and to go meet with the folks at Salesforce of all, you feel like you're part of the big leagues. And that was a fun, exhilarating experience for a kid that's grown up here and kind of starting to feel like you're living out dreams a little bit. I couldn't agree more. I feel the same way. Like, I love this shit. I am not sure if I work every day or if I never work. I genuinely can't tell the difference. People tease me all the time. My girlfriend teases me all the time on it. I'm like, no, I actually, you know, you see me smile a lot, but I, yeah, I generally really enjoy what I do all the time. And I love the history of it all. And I also grew up right there, dead smack there. And I went to Davis, which was an hour away. So I, it's right there. I remember when I first went to Kleiner, I went to the office. I didn't want to work there. I said no a couple times because I was like, venture capital. Like, that's what people do at the end of their career when they're like, <laughs> when they're trying to hang it up. Like, that doesn't sound fun. Like, I want to be in the arena. And I remember going in, and when I saw the sign, I looked around and I just thought to myself, if these walls could talk. And I started shaking. I was so nervous for like the most informal conversation ever. I was shaking because I was like, I know so much about this. Like I've been <laughs> reading about this for 20 years, for so long. I've had this statue in my head yeah. of how much innovation they've created and enabled. And so I get it, man, I get it. I wanna keep going. So dial pad, we finally get there an hour in. <laughs> to the dial pad comms team, I'm sorry. So. You join this company valued at over a billion, I think 1.2, maybe more now after the last fundraise. Yep, 1.2. Okay, GV, Iconic, A16Z. I think Mark Andreessen's on the board, if I'm not mistaken, or was. Yeah, he's on the board. And then uh, Rich Miner, who's the, the founder of Android's on the board as well. Nice. It's a fun board to be on. And Iconic and SoftBank. 
Can you spend 30 seconds? Like, what is Dialpad? Yeah, so Dialpad's a AI-powered cloud communication suite. So we do voice, video, team messaging, contacts that are in the cloud, all powered by artificial intelligence, which would be speech tracking NLP. You have an organization of about 250 people. Last year, you hired 100 and almost 50 people into your org, which is insane. It was about 35-ish, mil-ish in ARR. Now it's well past 100 and continuing to grow. Pretty great round. I got to be honest. That's a, like, that's a good run at it. So we just got into this like whole like, all right, CEO, like I love it. Like <laughs> this is what it's all about. And now you're, you know, the chief strategy officer, the chief revenue officer. You're still in the mix in the sense that like you're at the big girl table at the board. But if I was you, my pride would be like, I want to run the company. What's going on? How'd that transition go? Yeah, so these are all conversations like, so Craig Walker is our CEO, and this is his third foray in the voice space. He sold a, sold a business to Yahoo. He sold a business to Google, which became Google Voice. They left. They started Dialpad. Google Ventures wrote him the first check. So he's a well-versed, experienced CEO. I look up to him tremendously. These are conversations we have. Have or had? Have, had. Yeah, both. okay, yeah. Present, present ongoing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But these are things like... I happen to have a lot of experience in, in go-to-market motions. And I think we have the most innovative platform in the space. I think the markets that we're playing in are, are two of the biggest software markets out there in terms of the unified communication market and the cloud contacts in our market. And I think there's just such an immense opportunity to have like a fantastic outcome and opportunity of, to learn a bunch of things. I've never managed a, a business of this scale. And so there are still learnings for me. Like, I don't view this as like a, a step back because I was a CEO of a 20 person startup and the responsibilities and the complexities of my job today are, are much bigger than what I was doing at Talk IQ. But there are moments in time and, and Craig knows this that in my future, I would love to run a business again and get back in the mix. But for the foreseeable future, like, I just think there's so much scale and opportunity ahead. I would be kind of crazy to leave at this moment in time. People view that kind of ambition as unhealthy. I, I don't see it that way at all. Even with my teams, I want to hire someone that desperately wants my job. That is a dream. Like, that's great. And if you're not hiring that person, you're probably a little insecure about it or and maybe because you don't want to leave your job, you know? Yeah. And we have such a, a well-rounded team. You know, Jason Yang is our, our COO and Jason and I are in lockstep and Craig constantly tries to find ways where he wants to go and excel and find more time and then also continue to grow and think about ultimately 10 years down the line or whatever it might be. Like there has to be some succession plan. Like, you know, Craig is still very young, but there will be a point he wants to retire and then you have to start thinking of succession planning. I think those are, those are things that sometimes get missed by business. And we've got such a great opportunity and such a strong team that you might as well figure out like, how do you continue to grow those individuals that are part of the executive team and give them new opportunities for growth or exposure in different areas and keep kind of the team together because the team is really clicking on so many different levels. I have many ambitious guests on this podcast, many of whom's ambition leads to running a company. I'm sure they'd love to hear from you. What's the difference like in the function of the job? What are the similarities? What are the differences? What are areas of opportunities that they could start working on today in order to better prepare themselves for that role so that it's a, a softer landing? One of the hardest things is being a salesperson and figuring out how to interact and drive accountability and product and engineering, because I always talk to the product and engineering teams of like, I can't build things. So it gets really old when I show up and, and I always tell Jim, like, build faster. And he's like, well, you can't even help. <laughs> so, so you being the armchair quarterback is not helpful. Yeah. But that to me is one of the biggest things is really understanding how to drive accountability, what makes a good product manager, making sure that there's a very clear vision, making sure that you are removing distractions and roadblocks. Just figuring out how to work, I would say, across different teams and functions. And I think you don't appreciate that. Regardless, you might be a CRO and you're like, oh, well, you know, I have customer success and support and sales, so I know how to work cross-functionally. But I'm like, ah, those teams are all very similar. Working with engineers and product and then people ops, all very different of how they view the world and what they do. 
So I think just encouraging people to get that type of exposure. I think board exposure is, is important for people is to encourage people to ask for that exposure, even if it's just presenting a single slide, but understanding what they report on, the metrics, how they talk about it, how they view the business for scale. Those are very different conversations. You know, the metrics that you report to the board and talk about as opposed to, hey, what's the field street number look like? And, and how do we drive, you know, increased conversion and, and win rates and things to that nature? Those are areas like how to truly work cross-functionally and then understanding how to really manage a business. If I were to put my Kleiner hat on, what we would say is, and this is pretty typical in the Valley, is like, so it's important to have a founder running the company because they're the cultural lifeblood. We would prefer to have the founder be very product-centric because we think that we can help them more become a great leader and help on the distribution and go-to-market side than we could a product person or helping them be an API between the business and the product, right? I've been obsessed with Formula One recently, and I've watched Rush. I don't know if you've seen that. But no, but I watched the Netflix Formula One show that's on right now. It's is amazing. Oh, it's amazing. So watch Rush. It's about two racers, one of whom's name is Nikki Lauda, who's like the most successful Formula One racer. And anyway, there's a scene where he's driving and there's a gal in the passenger seat and he starts saying, hey, there's air in your brakes, your left back tire doesn't have enough pressure. He starts rattling off all the things that are wrong with the car. And she goes, what are you talking about? How do you know? And he said, I was born with a lot of flaws, but God gave me an ass. And she goes, what are you talking about? And he goes, I can feel the car, right? Like I can feel it. And this is such a weird analogy, but when I heard it, it made me think of like, that's a great leader. If you're sitting in a Formula One car and you're a good driver, that's awesome. But if you can't tell the engineers what's wrong with the car, you're not going to be the best. And I kind of thought about that in your world. I don't know if that makes sense. No, I think that's a very good analogy. So anyway, why don't we leave it on Jubin's weird analogy? I ask the same couple of questions that I always do to wrap these things up. The first, what does the word grit mean to you? I think for me, it's the ability to push through the pain, anxiety, fear to just accomplish a goal or get done what needs to be done. That to me is grit. It's like, hey, you have an outcome you got to go through all of the difficulties to get there. And I think there's some part of optimism that falls into that because you believe that the outcome is possible. I love that. Are you hiring? Where are you hiring for? Any key roles that you'd like to highlight? And how would someone best apply or get a hold of you? Yeah, we are hiring across the board. We are going to double the size of our go-to-market organization, both here domestically and also internationally over the course of the next year. We would love to hear from you. We're hiring product engineers, and I said and pretty much everything in go-to-market, customer success, support, BDR, SDR, channel, AEs. Please reach out. You can find us online, www.dialpad.com. You can reach out to me directly on LinkedIn. We can have a quick chat. I'll write you, get you in touch with the right folks. Dan, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. This was great. Thank you. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes with CROs from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.